Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. In 1848, as political movements and events were sweeping Europe and Marx and Engels penned their famous Communist Manifesto, Kierkegaard wrote in a letter, No, politics is not for me. To follow politics, even if only domestic politics, is nowadays an impossibility, for me at any rate. I love to focus my attention on lesser things in which one may sometimes encounter exactly the same. This negation of politics and its negation is the starting point for Bartholomew Ryan with his book Kierkegaard's Indirect Politics, interludes with Lukács, Schmidt, Benjamin and Adorno, which looks at Kierkegaard's own thinking and its effect on several more explicitly political thinkers. Kierkegaard's own politics are somewhat ambivalent, and one might struggle to fit them onto today's political landscape, but Ryan has a different project in mind. Instead, Kierkegaard's elusiveness, ambiguity, and cultivation of the single individual in all their inner psychological and spiritual richness are shown to be inspiring for thinking politics and history in new ways. In the four figures Ryan looks at, Kierkegaard's presence in all their thinking, both explicit and implicit, emerging with a sophisticated form of inwardness capable of standing against despair, despotism, and reification. Bartholomew Ryan is a philosophy research fellow at the Nova Institute of Philosophy at the Nova University in Lisbon, where he works at the intersection of literature and philosophy. He is co-editor of several books, Fernanda Pessoa and Philosophy, Countless Lives Inhabit Us, Faces of the Self, Autobiography, Confession, Therapy, Nietzsche and Pessoa, and Seos, and Nietzsche and the Problem of Subjectivity. Bartholomew Ryan, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. So could you maybe tell listeners just about who you are and what your work and research interests tend to be? Um, well, as you said, my name is Bartholomew Ryan. Um, I'm originally from Ireland, Dublin. Um, but in the last over the last 10 years, I've I've been based in Lisbon, working at the Universidade Nova de Lisboa, the university, the new University of Lisbon, as a philosophy researcher. Um, and I did my PhD in Denmark um, on a lot of the background to this book actually is started and was working there in, in Denmark. So between Inaris University and then working at the Kierkegaard Center in Copenhagen. After that, I was four years in Berlin working at the, the Liberal Arts College, the European College of Liberal Arts. At the time it was called that now, I think it's called Bard College Berlin, but I left just before that, that change and I went to Lisbon and my main research, I guess, has always been um, I guess you could call it interdisciplinary, um, mixing the political with the philosophical, the philosophical with the poetic, and um, so dealing uh, comfortably with philosophers, critical theorists, and and writers like James Joyce or um, Fernando Pessoa in Portugal. And um, so, 
Yeah, and I've written quite a lot on and people like mostly in, in the kind of the sphere of modernism. So from the end of the 19th century up until World War II, I guess. So yeah, people like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and some of the existentialists and also all this literature that was coming out primarily in Europe. And recently I've been working more on ecological thought, looking at ecological thought through the prism of both poets and philosophers. So I've always enjoyed that crossover, the poetic philosopher and the philosophical poet. We're probably touching these themes in this in this podcast. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, very much looking forward to talking about uh, this book with you. So throughout this book we're going to be talking about, you're trying to develop an indirect politics, largely based off the work of Soren Kierkegaard, who most would likely think of as being largely apolitical. To do this, you have kind of two interwoven threads. On the one hand, you work through the influence of Kierkegaard on some more explicitly political thinkers, Lukács, Schmidt, Benjamin, and Adorno. And on the other hand, you develop Kierkegaardian ideas of inwardness or his unsettling of certain norms and institutions in a more explicitly political direction. Could you unpack these approaches and what you're overall hoping to accomplish with this book? Yeah, that was very well said. Um, Yeah, it it was a challenge. I was really trying to forge this, this new concept, indirect politics. And I guess the, the title of the book itself um, is already quite packed. Kierkegaard's indirect politics and then interludes with Lukács, Schmidt, Benjamin and Adorno. And that's really all that in the, in the title is really what I was trying to unpack. And as you said, it's, it's kind of, it's like a, a, a kind of a two-pronged um, um, approach. Yeah, as you said, looking at Kierkegaard himself and his writings, um, especially the 1848 and we'll probably look at that in a moment as well but the 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 productivity of that year and mirroring of course what was happening in Europe at the same time and then looking at Kierkegaard's influence as in some of the most radical um kind of pioneering uh, political thinkers of the beginning of the 20th century uh, from kind of both spectrums left and right and how this person shows up uh, prominently um, and sometimes um, trying to hide the, the figure uh, amidst their writings. And yet, as you say, Kierkegaard would be the first to declare that he is not political. Um, and that's how I begin the book, by saying, uh, I, I um, begin with a quote to the introduction by Kierkegaard himself saying, no, politics is not for me. And that, that, but that sentence really sums up a lot of indirect politics as well, because he says, no, politics is not for me. To follow politics, even if only domestic politics, is nowadays an impossibility for me. Politics is too much for me. I love to focus my attention on lesser things in which one may sometimes encounter exactly the same. This is a classic Kierkegaard um, a s- a statement showing that beginning with a complete negation and ending up saying, well, I'm actually doing that anyway. Uh, um, it reminds me of something that Bob Dylan said when he said, are you protesting? And he said, no, all I do is protest. Um, it's kind of the same idea that a, a writer for Kierkegaard is its essence, polemical, um, uh, is going against the grain, is is critiquing society. So that's Kierkegaard, once again, being quite ironic and humorous and and contradictory. And and that's really part of what indirect politics is. So the title, Indirect Politics, 
um, is, and the word interludes are probably the two uh, terms or concepts that are most important in the book that keep coming back again and again. Um, because, of course, indirect is something that we, we, we think of when we hear the name Kierkegaard, famously the indirect communication. Famously, he's the philosopher who uses over you know, a dozen pseudonyms to show different ways of existence, famously the aesthetic, ethical, or the religious spheres of existence. And some of his best writings and most famous writings are written under kind of very stylistic and rich pseudonymous uh, authors um, with so much to unpack there. So indirect communication is something fundamental to Kierkegaard's strategy uh, within philosophy. We'll probably more time to talk about that as well, hopefully. But so the indirect politics is something you might say, um, how will I put it, is to keep that elusiveness um, because Kierkegaard is, is going a roundabout way. And his two, his two prototypes are the two figures that he always comes back to and never criticizes are, are Socrates and, and Christ. So the, the Greek philosopher and the, and the, the, the Messiah of, of Christianity. So, but they are for him kind of symbolize also and are emblematic of indirect politics. Because um, if you think about them, both of them are um, not political figures per se, um, but they they fit what indirect politics could be because I call indirect politics a set of masks. So for one, if you look at these two figures as kind of political figures, both of them are wearing masks per se. You have Socrates um, kind of walking around like a beggar, pretending to not know anything, saying he doesn't know anything yet, seen as the wisest man in Athens. You have Christ also, Whose, whose friends are beggars or fishermen, uneducated people, prostitutes, and, and yet he's the son of God. So they both also speak indirectly. You know, it's Christ speaks in parables to, to, to communicate um, some of his, his fundamental ideas. And with Socrates, it's the maiotic technique, trying to get the, the, the person in the dialogue to, to, to find himself or to uncover or unravel or unfold one's own self. And this is the famous Socratic dialogue or Socratic method. So, and, and they're also martyrs, you know, the, both of them die for the truth, um, the, the, kind of the philosopher and the religious sphere. So Kierkegaard um, is really, that's kind of the indirect politics. These are the kind of, I guess, the prototypes or the, the exemplars, but he's, they're not alone. He also uses a lot of literary figures as well. Uh, to to put forward his his kind of critical thinking and, and famously in fear and trembling one of his earliest second i guess second pseudonymous work he quotes richard the third um in a moment uh, the, the opening lines of richard the third from shakespeare and then says there's more to learn from that than all the moral philosophies in the history of philosophy so there you have again it's different ways of trying to communicate um a politics and, and to, to kind of to, to, to conclude, at least now, because we'll go back, to, this will come up again and again, the indirect politics is kind of what you might say, it's displacing dis disciplinary identities. And I say it at the beginning of the book. So it kind of shows that theology is masking politics or law is masking theology or political theory is masking philosophy or psychology is masking literary critical approaches. So it's always kind of in the in-between are among things and the refusal of a fixed disciplinary boundary. 
and wants to dissolve boundaries. And this kind of is hopefully lead on to political praxis, which we see in the four thinkers that come after that. And that's why the word interludes and not dialogues is used. They're not dialogues, but they're literally interludes. And beautifully, it's their interwar thinkers, the, the four thinkers, Schmidt, Lukács, Benjamin and Adorno, they're the interludes. And I want to open up. So in the second sphere of a second kind of part of the book is to show these four different interludes from kind of chapters um, three, four and five, isn't it? Uh, two, three, four and five, going through each of them, showing them as interludes. And so inter indirect politics is an interlude or it's a gap. The word in, in, in Danish is melamspiel, like between the play, which, you know, you have this in, in musical musicals, the, kind of the light entertainment in between the two serious parts of a, of a musical production. Let's have the, the interlude, or you might have the interlude where famously in, you might see Shakespeare's Hamlet, the, the funny interlude, the two interludes where they put on the play. Or um, the, the Hamlet puts on the play to show to his his mother and the new king, but actually the play is a very serious moment where it's showing actually what Hamlet's thinking. This is the murder being enacted through the play. Or later, of course, the graveyard scene when Hamlet meets the the grave diggers, and they could be seen as interludes. The two funniest, probably the funniest part of, of Hamlet, is is by the graveyard, and yet it's it's probably the most existential moment of the of the play at the same time. So this is just examples of what I'm trying to get at with uh, indirect politics and the interludes with the four other thinkers. Yeah, moving into the book proper, you start with the year 1848, a year that will likely bring to mind Marx and Engels' famous communist manifesto and the revolution spreading across Europe at the time. Before getting to Kierkegaard, could you unpack what was going on in the background, particularly in Germany and Denmark, so as to set the stage for Kierkegaard's own intellectual development at this time? Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, 1848 is kind of, it's, it's both um, sim, a symbol and, and a, a very concrete reality of, of history. So all over Europe, um, there was there was revolutions happening. I call that chapter actually in chapter one, um, I guess, I think I remember revolution, um, um, 18, of reaction and, and revolution. So strong reactionary forces are, are re-emerging and emerging or being confronted and also many revolutionary um, forces as well. So um, how will I put this? Um, well, in, in 1848, you had over almost 50 areas all over. You couldn't call them countries. Many of them were just states. I mean, Germany didn't exist. Italy didn't exist. They were various states, but there was, there was the rise of really um, kind of a, a whole liberal movement, mostly, mostly bourgeois movement, but also working classes as well. Um, kind of the, the quest for um, getting rid of the, monarch, the structures of monarchy and kind of the, the birth of nation states kind of coming from the, the movement of romanticism from the late kind of 18th century. Um, so suddenly there was this call for more political participation, the freedom of the press, um, economic rights for, for working class, and of course the rise of, of nationalism. And, and the end of absolute monarchy did come about in Denmark in 1848. So this was a, a massive thing. It became a, I guess it became a, a constitutional monarchy. So the national liberals of Denmark succeeded. Most of the revolutions in 1848 failed. And famously, the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels was, was published that year, the most famous 
of all communist uh, texts and I mean Marx's most famous Engels and Marx that was published. So there's a great hope, a kind of a call to the revolutions, not only from the bourgeoisie, but the working class. So in, in Germany, there was a big revolution in the march and this kind of a call for, again, freedom of the press, freedom of the assembly. But the, the conservative aristocracy did defeat them. And most of the, the leaders of 1848 across from the Habsburg Empire and Romania, you sweeping all across Europe, most of them went into exile or prison. Even in Ireland, where I come from, this was the age of the famine, you know, the, the famine, the Irish famine from kind of 45, 46, 47. And there were famines all over Europe, not just Ireland. I guess Ireland was the most devastated because it almost crippled the, the country by at least a third. So um, people, huge numbers dying. They can't really tell up to a million and up to a million emigrating as well. So Marx and Engels were very aware of this uh, and were writing about that as well. So a lot of this then after 1848, there was a kind of return to reactionism and return to the security of, of certain monarchies. But there had been a great shakeup and it seemed very much as a great symbol um, for, for world affairs. And of course, there was also, just to kind of finish there, there's also kind of there's a conflict between the German states and, and Denmark itself in the kind of low, the, the, called the Schleswig and Holstein areas where because of this new constitutional monarchy, um, Germany were trying to build their own German state and taking them away from Denmark, but Denmark beat them. There was a war going on, um, which Kirchhoff was very aware of, of course, as well. People were dying. It was very, Copenhagen was a small town. You could see the effects of war, but the, the Danes won in 1848, even though the, um, the, the Germans had some, didn't have to align completely with the constitutional monarchy of Denmark. But then later on, not I think in 1864, the Germans retook that area of South, kind of South Denmark, and of course, and then a few years later became, became the Prussian, the Prussian Empire, beginning of the Prussian Empire, um, and and Denmark suffered economically during this time, even though it was like a Pyrrhic victory. When it's even though it had kind of secured that area, was economically in a very in a difficult state. Saying that. During Kierkegaard's time, Kierkegaard's time, it was also the golden age of Danish culture. It was where most of Danes' most famous writers were writing. You know, Hans Christian Andersen was a contemporary of Kierkegaard writing. So even though the, the economy was really fragile, it was the end of a monarchy uh, as a full power, Danish culture was, was flourishing. And Kierkegaard was part of that. Yeah, I'll just add something. Uh, you mentioned the name of the first chapter. It's actually Crossroads of Revolution and Reaction, and that's very important as we work into discussing Kierkegaard. So on that note, um, you note that 1848 was a remarkably productive year for Kierkegaard himself, although it needs to be put into his own kind of personal context as well. At this time, he is fresh off the infamous Corsair affair, and also around this time, he had been considering ceasing to write and instead was considering pursuing a pastoral appointment with the church, although that obviously didn't pan out. Instead, he ended up hammering out numerous books under a variety of pseudonyms that year, and in Europe, this year represents a major turning point in his own thinking. Could you tell us a bit about what was going on at this time for him? Yes, um, I 1848 was very important for Kierkegaard as well. We were, through the years, of course, the, the, the period, the, the 
period of writing between 1842 to 46 was extraordinary as well. I mean, this is the famous from either or to fear and trembling, repetition, philosophical <laughs> fragments, concept of anxiety, the concluding unscientific postscript. I mean, this was extraordinary. This really cemented his, his reputation and his, his ideas um, for posterity. But what happens, funnily enough, in 1846, I mean, you kind of go back before 1848 is a small little text, which is also very well known now, it didn't have an impact really then, like many of his works, but it was in the 20th century where it did have an influence on some of the big thinkers of the 20th century. That's a literary review or known as Two Ages in 1846, which was just meant to be a review of a small book, but turns into the last kind of 20, 30 pages, talks about the revolutionary age and the present age, and the present age being the age which he's living through now, which was kind of a shock in a way because even though the world was a revolution, there was, you know, this was the time of, of Marx and Engels um, and a growing um, disenchantment and the birth of very, lots of new ideas um, across Europe. And yet Kierkegaard called the present age, the age without passion, the age of reflection, the age where superficiality is, is being uh, kind of celebrated and level, level, everything's been leveled off into mediocrity. So you see this kind of disdain for the bourgeoisie, the middle class that are almost taking away the kind of grandeur or heroic element of, of existential uh, being. And of, of course, that also ties in with his also his other attack on, on the, the church. So the church being kind of just incorporated into the bourgeois existence, as he says, if you're if you're Danish, you're a Christian, and vice versa. There's no there's no battle at all there. So this is what he was thinking in 1846 and writing. At the same time, as you say, he thought that was it for him. He had he had done what he needed to do to the point where he thought he was meant to die in 1846 because he was. There was seven children. He was only two of them were left at that stage. Him and his brother, who become a pastor, was a, quite a well known pastor. So. Here was Kierkegaard thinking, what will I do next? And so it, what happens is he does write before 48, a, a, a formidable work called Works of Love, where you see this new, uh, a very different kind of Kierkegaard emerging, which is a Kierkegaard community looking at love, um, following a neighbor and go through various um, sections, kind of meditating on, on St. Paul's in the New Testament. And, and also the large work, work called Upbuildings and Discourses for Various Spirits, both written under his own name. But then in 48, while all this is happening in the background across Europe and in Denmark, he writes Christian Discourses, which is a more often overlooked text, again, under his own name. Maybe the title puts philosophers off, but within that text, um, you have an extraordinary, dense philosophical um, analysis of what it means literally to exist in the face of um, the various temptations of contemporary existence. And he calls them the, the cares of a cumbering care, Sorg um, in German, which Heidegger takes on as an important theme in his being in time later in the 20th century. And Heidegger was a very a serious reader of Kierkegaard and the formation of a, as a philosopher. So we would have been very aware of Christian discourses. So this, this kind of uh, very important text that comes out um, in, in, in 1848, but also he writes the point of view um, looking at the report to history. It's kind of a very strange autobiography. It's, it's his ecce homo, <laughs> but um, he withholds most of, of the publication of that, but writes it analyzing his own work and how what his pseudonymous works mean. And then 
forms the, the great uh, kind of last great uh, pseudonymous author, Anticlimacus, who is the author of Sickness Unto Death and Practicing Christianity. Again, two extremely polem polemical um, texts. The first might showing you the, the, the sickness, the second one showing the cure. And this is where you see Socrates coming to the forefront of practice Christianity as a figure that's alongside Christ as he says, we don't need a new Republic. We don't need this. We need, what we need is a new Socrates. So you see this uh, single individual emerging in a more nuanced and more coherent form as someone that's engaged in society. So this paradox or contradiction happening in Kierkegaard on one hand, he's now reaching out to the common man or trying to be the common man, but at the same time, using the single individual was quite an isolated, almost aristocratic, uh, demanding figure. So it reminds me all sometimes of, of the great 20th century writer, James Joyce, who on the one hand wants to write books for everybody, you know, the, the, for the complete common man, um, and for the, the, the bourgeois man uh, and woman in both Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, and yet writing in the most difficult experimental language, Finnegan's Wake arguably the most uh, experimental, uh, audacious book in the English language, but yet about a very common, uh, unheroic family. Kierkegaard, of course, is not going as far as, as Joyce, but the point is he's actually now trying to speak to the common man, but at the same time, the common man, high expectations. And Kierkegaard's audience, of course, are the bourgeoisie. This could be, we could see this as defense of him later if he's just seen as a bourgeois decadence. But actually, Kierkegaard, he's trying to wake up the bourgeois. He, they're his target of attack. They really are the, the one that he's targeting, him himself included, you know. Um, as he says himself, I'm not a writer of my books, I'm a reader of my books. Um, so that's what's happening with him in 1848. Uh, and it, there's a, just to conclude there, there is a very interesting, interesting lady around Easter time, 1848, in his journals, he talks about how he must now, um, he must now speak. Um, first of all, it's about being silent. There's almost this kind of, I don't know, religiosity going through him at that period that maybe I, I need to, to remain, go silent to become that pastor. And there's a period over the Easter, Easter break where he becomes silent, but then he comes back out again and says, I must speak. And, and we maybe we'll have time or at least to think about for future readers of Kierkegaard, this word silence and speaking, which I kind of touch on at the end of the book, but just be silent is really to listen is to, to you know, it's, it's not a, a silence is an activity just as, as much as prayer is an act of listening. And, from, and in the text that he was writing in 1848 called On the Lily in the Field and the Bird in the Air, a very small text, which has three discourses, joy, it begins with obedience. Obedience is a silence, obedience and joy, and they're interlinked. And it's a very, it's interesting to read that text because there's no mention of any philosophers or, or at all. It's written in a very simple form, but you have this, it's almost a call to living affirmatively, but silence and joy Silence and obedience are very interconnected. Obedience, the etymology of obedience is to listen, the capacity to listen, to listen before, an audio, obedecer. Um, and you see that e much easier in the, in the Danish with the ludihel is the word, lud is sound, ludihel. So it's the soundness, listening to the sound is actually the form of obedience. So um, there's a lot going on with Kierkegaard in 1848 and, and very, very productive. And most Christiana, practicing Christianity was also written that year, even though he published it in 1850. Um, so there you go.
Yeah, jumping. Oh, Sorry, just one last thing. I would say that he published in, in I think it was July 1848, he published another text on the actress that's called A Crisis and a Crisis in the Life of an Actress. And it's kind of uh, under another um, pseudonym, which is important to this book called Inter Eight Inter, literally between and between. And that was published alongside um, an article by someone else on the fate of the working classes right now in 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 Denmark, and you have this in the pamph- in, in in the magazine. You have on the one hand you have Kierkegaard looking at an actress, a, a very a very real actress who admired dearly, and the idea of transformation that she goes on to play um, Juliet for the second time, and how she plays it better the second time, and this great kind of last great aesthetic essay by Kierkegaard under the name Interet Inter published in 1848 as well so it's important which I use as a motto for the beginning of the book um, on restlessness and the infinite infinity infinity of restlessness. Yeah so jumping off of that and moving into the interludes the first one you discuss is uh, George Lukács and in this chapter on him you explore kind of a trajectory he goes along throughout his life Uh, but I think it's worth starting with his early writings like Soul and Form, Theory of the Novel, History and Class Consciousness and here Lukács is very much in dialogue with Kierkegaard on the value of inwardness, reflection, and cultivation of the inner life in what they refer to as the Faustian man. Um, And at this point, Lukács argues this is all important for a life of militant political engagement. Uh, Could you speak to what he's drawing from Kierkegaard here and how he sees inwardness as a foundation for political life? Yes, I mean, this, the story of, of Georg Lukács is, is fascinating, say the least. It's a, um, a 20th century story, but he is one of the first international writers to uh, publish seriously on, on reflections on, on Kierkegaard in, in Soul and Form, which is published, I think, the, 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 the German version in 1911. He wrote in Hungarian and in German, and a small collection of essays where you, you see Lukács uh, famously known as kind of the, the romantic anti-capitalist phase. So he's, he, he comes from a very, very upper class background, uh, Jewish Hungarian, um, and he hasn't yet discovered um, Marx, but he um, is immersed in Ibsen and, and Kierkegaard and later and Nietzsche and later Dostoevsky. And he talks about the foundry of form upon life. He was very drawn to Kierkegaard in this early essay looking at and I don't think that ever leaves him actually he sees Kierkegaard as trying to kind of combine bringing together both thought and action or the gesture and the form what happens with the gesture and in this in this essay he sees this kind of great honesty in in Kierkegaard and an existential honesty how to live and kind of this is again very much pre pre Heidegger pre Sartre where Lukács and Soul and Form is very much right, kind of carving out these existential themes in, in, in the very first decade of the 20th century via Kierkegaard. And that's where he was very drawn to him. And later in Theory of the Novel, which is kind of, it was written during World War One, So dramatic things happening, especially from where Lukács was. He was in Budapest and World War One. And the, fall, the collapse of the Habsburg Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was happening. So there was very much uh, turmoil, both in the personal life and the life 
political life um, around Lukács, and he was trying to write literally a text for a bit of a, it was a Kierkegaardian critique of Hegel um, and looking at the disintegration of forms and how Kierkegaard had somehow tapped into this fragmentation of, of modern society and and leaving over, over and open a gap. But he moved, was starting to move away from Kierkegaard as he got further into reading Hegel and looking at Dostoevsky, perhaps be able to do a better job than Kierkegaard. And the, the theory of the novel famously ends with Dostoevsky um, and how we must leave the, the age of absolute sinfulness. The age of absolute sinfulness is actually a term by Fichte, um, a contemporary of Hegel. But um, Lukács talked about we must leave now the age of absolute sinfulness. And, and Dostoevsky may be a, the one, and he was becoming more attracted to the Dostoevsky, especially now the Russian Revolution happened in 1917. And Dostoevsky was somebody who had lived through uh, turmoil and the age revolution and somehow was seen as a profit figure for, for Lukács. So, and then of course, famously, Lukács then makes the leap into, um, into Bolshevism and joins the, to the shock of all of his friends. I mean, this is a person who studied with Georg Zimmel and Max Weber. Um, and, and for many of them, it was a shock that he had made this leap. And, and there's a great, there's a beautiful essay by um, uh, a Hungarian writer, um, uh, Andre Nagy, who wrote, writes a small an essay called Abraham the Communist, and that was very um, important for me um, for for writing my own book here. Um, and his kind of his idea or theory is that it was through, you know, Lukács is the is the Abraham. You know, it's, it's through reading Kierkegaard that he was able to make the leap of faith into into Marxism and into to become a Bolshevik member for the rest of his life, you know, and, and stood by it till the end of his life. So um, that's again, the contradictions um, of, of within Lukács. And when we say the Faustian phase, um, you could also, looking back now at the book, and Hamlet is very present in the book, but there's two phases really. There's the Hamlet and the Faust. You know, the Faust is the decisionist moment. You know, the the, the almost the, the the binary is like the either or serving. You know, to have all the the the, the riches of the world, but yet give away your soul. And it's kind of this moment of decision, the Faustian moment, or Hamlet, the embodiment of ambiguity and procrastination and and and, and turmoil. So. Um, you have that with with Lukács and Kierkegaard, um, this this and, and and Lukács talks about him kind of being having two souls, you know, having uh, this conflict within him at the beginning, at the, the preface, the famous preface, the nineteen sixty seven preface. It's either in, that, that there's two amazing prefaces, both for the theory of the novel and history and class consciousness, where he's looking back at his work and he says in the, in the theory of the novel preface that Kierkegaard was present all the way through theory of the novel um, and he and refers to uh, the, him kind of going through that Faustian phase and the same with Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is a very young man before publishing his first major work either or he wanted to write a book on Faust um, but um, someone else got there before him famously Martinson a uh, pastor who was kind of his enemy throughout his life so Faust turns up scattered throughout either or in different ways and through the fear and trembling and repetition. So that's kind of the, the initial and formative phase of Lukács. So 
moving along through Lukács's life and his work, he eventually has a substantial turn away from Kierkegaard. So where his early work celebrated ambiguity as a starting point for reflection that could lead to praxis, the later Lukács, particularly in The Destruction of Reason, sees this existential ambiguity as a seed of fascism or totalitarianism. So Nietzsche and Heidegger are the primary targets of that book, but Kierkegaard also gets roped in as well as a form of bourgeois intellectual decadence that harbors political dangers. Although you argue this both misreads Kierkegaard and drops what was perhaps best in Lukács' early work. Could you speak to this shift? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated journey, but again, yeah, I mean, the no doubt that this giant book, The Destruction of Reason, which um, I think it finally sees the light of day in, in maybe the, the early 50s is quite, but even most of it was written in the late 30s and then early 40s. So of course you have to think of the, the, the circumstances under which it was written as well. Um, uh, so yes, you're, you're dead right where kind of the book, the first part of the book shows kind of the the, the figures of bourgeois decadence and kind of the 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 the, the prelude to um, explicit fascist thought and the, those those figures are Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, and Nietzsche are the kind of the, the three of the, the pre twentieth century and um, kind of the the the, the kind of the rationalist thinkers um, and of course Lukács Lukács had been bewitched by by Nietzsche and Schopenhauer at the as a very young man and and moved away from them quite quickly and then with Kierkegaard it was a more gradual um process but it's the it's the kind of um the the allure of subjectivity and the the this kind of ambiguity that remains within Kierkegaard that Lukács doesn't like and of course this again closeness with um sticking with the church and and a christian faith that he says still belongs to this kind of bourgeois aestheticism that still exists to, 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 to that said he still he still puts up that point where at least Kierkegaard was honest so he, he manages even in the destruction of reason which is a is a text that literally goes 100 uh, uh, percent quite viciously at many thinkers and, and Lukács was writing this through the years of the purges and what was happening in Stalinist Russia and um, I mean Lukács's life was in danger once again so he's he's in a period where and it was, it's the the peak of, of Nazis, Nazism as well so he has kind of over his shoulder um, Stalin's minions and so this book is now seen as kind of a, in many ways, kind of a horrible book that uh, compromised famously by Adorno talking later that it was almost a sacrifice of, of Lukács' intellect. So we can look at it from that kind of a, a product of that period. But there are elements of truth in a way, if you want to see of um, how um, radical left thinkers were thinking about someone like Kierkegaard, that he was a bourgeois thinker, and he was um, um, not really um, a, so, someone that was, was very um, vehemently against kind of mass movements, famously said that democracy or the people's government was an idea of hell. So uh, like 
Schopenhauer and Nietzsche as well, very conservative. But I always remember what, what uh, Karl Marx said about Balzac, Balzac being a monarchist and very bourgeois, um, but also always a defender of conservative aristocratic ideals, and yet was the greatest writer on, on the detailed life and existence of, of bourgeois working class. And you could learn so much from, 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 from reading someone like Balzac. In other words, dialectically, a literary work is not, not the simple reproduction of certain ideologies, but a work can have other powers. And I, Kierkegaard has that same power that there is, of course, on the surface, as I say in the beginning of the book, politics is not for me. But Kierkegaard, of course, on one level, is very conservative. He likes the monarchy. He likes things the way they are. But, but the work within Kierkegaard is extremely radical. And famously, he says the beginning of either or through a pseudonym, everyone wants freedom of speech. The problem is what happened to freedom of thought? So Kierkegaard, we're losing the freedom of thought, the freedom of, of, of real thinking. Um, and if you look at things like uh, reification in, in Lukács, one of his kind of most famous and, and greatest moments in, in history and class consciousness, the idea of make, um, commodifying things, and it's an amazing reading of Lukács of the of kind of the commodity from the capital um, and looking at the alienation it, it gives us. You could see a Kierkegaardian element in that with Kierkegaard with his analysis of society through Christian discourses and sickness unto death and practicing Christianity. This reification or later the culture industry um, that is analyzed in the dialectic of the Enlightenment by, by Adorno and Horkheimer that within Kierkegaard's um, superficially conservative text is a very radical uh, critique of, of society, which that I would say that other thinkers like Adorno and Lukács miss in Kierkegaard. Remember, in the last year of Kierkegaard's life, he's out in the street and um, literally selling his, his own kind of paper, the, the moment. And he hasn't lost any of the humor or wit, it's, but it's, it's much more direct because he's literally giving away his own writings on the street, but it's, it's directly attacking both church and state. Um, and it shows it's kind of a one-man battle. It's not someone that's hiding away from society, which is the kind of picture you get from, from the readings by, by the later uh, Adorno and, and Lukács. And that's where it's missed, that, that part, that kind of community and polemical element from works of love right up until the, the, the moment, until he collapses literally on the street. Uh, so turning from revolution to reaction, you look at Carl Schmitt, who also deeply admired Kierkegaard, although we'll unpack that he had a somewhat selective reading of his work, as you argue. Um, but to start, Schmitt finds some inspiration in his concept of the exception, which can certainly be found in texts like Fear and Trembling. Uh, but you also find Schmidt quoting the much quieter and tamer repetition as a source here. Could you give us a sense of what Schmidt is getting out of Kierkegaard's early work here? Yes, I mean, the famous, the, I look really at three texts um, by, by Schmidt and in this book, the um, political romanticism, um, political theology, and the concept of the political those three uh, are really what under the radar in this in this in this book. With the concept of the political, which comes out I think in 1922, the, the end of the first chapter, um, Kierkegaard is quoted a long quote from repetition, and he doesn't mention Kierkegaard by name. He says a Protestant theologian, um, 
Um, I'm just trying to remember now. The Protestant theologian who who understood the exception with most with the most passionate intensity, and he and he goes on to quote the poet as the exception. There, the poet is he who decides on the exception. And of course, famously, the 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 text by Schmidt begins with the sovereign is he who decides on the exception. Well, Kierkegaard as Constantine Constantius in repetition, it's the poet who decides on the exception. So Schmidt loves that, and Schmidt again, is like other um, pre and fascist thinkers of the early 20th century. And this is what really irks Lukács, because Lukács, it's funny, the early Lukács and the early, for example, Heidegger had the same taste. They were tapping into the same similar uh, writers like Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard. They were they were looking at and being inspired. So Lukács really had, to, and the same with Adorno, had to turn away from these thinkers because they've been aligned or kind of appropriated by the likes of Schmidt and, and, and Heidegger. And remember that Schmidt was given a positive review, the concept of the political was given a positive view in the late 20s by Lukács. Um, this is during the Weimar years. And of course, then um, by the time of the destruction of reason, Schmidt is you know, uh, an explicitly fascist thinker. But Schmidt was drawn to Kierkegaard but this kind of element of decisionism, there's no doubt, the either-or, either-or decisionism, the, which the first text of, of the first massive book of Kierkegaard, um, 800 pages, and literally the, the, the moment of decision, the either-or, literally, um, you, have, you can read Kierkegaard in this kind of almost um, either-or decisionism, the resoluteness, and Kierkegaard, uses the word reckoning or the accounting, Regenscape, the time of reckoning has to come, the moment of decision. If you make the choice, that's what makes you a concrete human being. And this was very, uh, very stimulating to, to people like Carl Schmidt, who then turned it into the political. Um, so, and this idea of the friend-enemy distinction, kind of, you can see this either-or politics happening in the concept of the political. By defining your enemy, you understood stand your own politics. And also in the political romanticism text, um, you see also that this Schmidt's disdain for any form of democracy or parliamentary thinking or assembly calls them the eternal conversation and kind of hypocritical thinking. And, he, and he, you can find these, this kind of um, disdain in Kierkegaard for the kind of Philistine thinking, the, the hypocriti hypocritical, dishonest, uh, use the word clobscape, which literally kind of, um, how would you, kind of cleverness, or kind of clever people um, living the kind of calm life, and, 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 but thinking they're being, doing something challenging. And he, he was, was, was very much um, saw this as the, as the enemy and wanted to show actually, no, for example, Christianity said, it's crazy to be a Christian. It's so demanding. There's nothing, there's nothing of consolation to be a Christian. Rather, for example, Abraham is either the father of faith or he's a madman or he's a murderer. You know, this is the father of the three major religions of the, of, of, of kind of the West. We have Islam, Judeo-Christian, uh, Judeo-Judaism and, and Christianity. Abraham told to murder his son on top of Mount Moriah, and that text by Kierkegaard is this exceptional moment where we don't know what's going through the, the mind of Abraham, but he has to take that decision. So when you say about repetition, repetition was published on the same day as as Fear and Trembling. They both come out at the same time. Is the other text is somebody who's trying to trying to live through life uh, forward and being transformed by that. It's a very complex, very strange text, probably his most literary text and dense and elusive 
And it's this idea of overcoming recollection, the kind of Greek recollection and instead repetition. And the word he's very happy about in Danish is gentelse, which literally is taking again. Curiously enough, in Danish, exception is um, untelsen, so literally a, a taking out. But they could be, I was looking at the etymology of the word untelsen because it could be un. Un is also grace in um in Danish. So I'm trying to find a Danish friend who will tell me, because I didn't talk about the etymology of the word exception, untailse, but it has this kind of relation here to untailse and gintailse. So in repetition, you have the untailse. It's easier to see in German, it's ausnaume. So um, taking out or the, the naming. And interesting that name and take are come from on the same root in the German language and with Carl Schmidt later on uh, there's a, a small little the appendix to the the nomos of the earth he talks about naming and how naming leads to taking appropriation distribution and production how you this is how the world political world world works so with being the exception you can do the exception to the rule of course but for course someone like Kierkegaard he's talking about a poet and that poet within repetition fails in his endeavor and um, he doesn't actually achieve repetition but yet the poet can see with passionate intensity the danger is that schmidt um, um kind of politicizes this aesthetic element while with with kierkegaard it remains in the aesthetic sphere and he he keeps moving along of course he he moves along through his writings on one level, leaping to the ethical phase, but also there's an interpenetration between the different spheres of existence as well. So I think Schmidt simplifies um, or just takes what he wants to take from, from, from his, his writer. He calls him his, his, his brother in spirit in, 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 his, in some of his diary entries. But he also says famously, and I can quote that in the book, he says famously to his friend Ernst Junger, the, the writer of Storm, and Storm of Steel, the, the famous novel, about World War One, he says such indirect influences which elude any documentation are the strongest and by far the most authentic. And I thought that was very revealing. Um, using the word indirect influences are the ones that can be the most the most authentic or strongest uh, presence um, in, in in your work. Yeah, you've been kind of alluding to my next question on Schmidt. So you spend a lot of time in this chapter pointing out how Schmidt tries to take many of Kierkegaard's ideas further than they can actually go, which brings out something interesting about Kierkegaard that while he is interested in poking holes in certain norms and social structures, and while this can be developed into a sort of political praxis, he's not quite as aristocratic as has often been assumed. So where Schmidt is interested in a political version of Abraham who can make exceptional political decisions, Kierkegaard believes in a sort of inner democracy that's open to all. Could you unpack this and speak to the gap here between the two or the problems that emerge from Smith's uh, overextension of certain concepts. Well, as I said before, yeah, I mean, Schmidt is, as it's, and you've said it already, that there's the selective reading of Schmidt. It's well and good what you can do with, with fear and trembling. Even with fear and trembling, I think it's wrong-headed, but there's an overlook, and the overlooking is also there with, with other uh, um, interludes, the, the figures of interludes in the book, is this... Yeah, this kind of looking at humanity, which is really odd to think about with Kierkegaard, who's considered the, the solitary, isolated existentialist 
Um, but actually, the works of love, Christian discourses, practicing Christianity is looking at this human likeness, this this element of community that we have, the str- loving the stranger. We see this in in some of the ethical uh, thinkers of 20th century, and Emmanuel Levinas, and later in Derrida, that within this later Kierkegaard, especially that period of 1847-48, is the Kierkegaard trying to uh, carve out a very serious ethical philosophy, looking at the kind of the, the that Judeo element of the, the orphan, the, the widow and the stranger, loving your neighbor is this kind of great um, feat um, to be able to do. We can all love our, our family and our love our loved ones, but to love the one we will not meet, this is the great feat, and that's completely unschmittian. You know, there's nothing, and and you might say this is outside the political. But with again going back to Kierkegaard, yes, it's it's the, the meaning of very existence, because Kierkegaard is always uh, engaged with um, his contemporary society. Remember, he might say he's not political, but he's always writing in, in the newspapers, always reacting to what's going on, and yet there's of course the separation of um, religious belief and living in the world. Of course, he wants to make that separation, but within his text, that separation is always being dissolved. So that's the part where, and even with Abraham, you know, this is the problem. Abraham remains an elusive thinker. I mean, he doesn't kill his son, (laughs) um, but he's going to, he makes the, the decision to do this, but it's something that's it's outside uh, a, a, system, a human system or outside teleology. And out, so it's, it, kind of, it kind of both um, disrupts Hegelian dialectics that we can't really understand it. There's a rupture. Um, and also it disrupts the coziness of Christian existence that this is something that we should be very worried about. So uh, Schmidt, again, doesn't, doesn't see this humanity, this kind of a, there is this kind of, um, he, and there, that, there you see the lawyer and the political figure that it's about how to organize the world and, and, and using someone like Kierkegaard as a decisionist thinker um, to get things going, to stamping out any form of kind of um, political nuance per se. And we see this within in, 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 in Schmidt's own, own writings later, which are phenomenal political works because they do expose the hypocrisies of liberal democracies. But they also um, um, show a very kind of very sinister element in in the, the path where he, he wants to take and takes people like you or with him. Yeah, moving along to Walter Benjamin, uh, he shares a lot with Kierkegaard, particularly his skepticism of historical progress and interested in the fragmentary and the marginal. Uh, but a good place to start, I think, would be with their overlap um, with their walks through the city. So Kierkegaard famously wandered around Copenhagen, spent a lot of time talking with local residents, while Benjamin's largest work, the Unfinished Arcades Project, is an attempt to document and understand the sort of consciousness or subjectivity that a massive city such as Paris might engender. So could you speak to this mutual interest in wandering the city and what they get out of it philosophically? Yes, Walter Benjamin is, is almost like the odd man out of the three in a way. Of course, he's very much connected with, with, all, with all of them. A friend of Adorno um, knew well of Schmidt and Lukács' works and refers to them. But yet he, is, he fits in with the element in Kierkegaard, which was very important to me as well, is that almost flaneur idea of the wanderer 
in the, the city. Of course, Benjamin is inspired about uh, from these through his writings and readings of uh, Baudelaire, um, and is a great reader of of, of the, the French poet Baudelaire. But yes, this idea of um, and the word, of course, in Danish is daudriver. It's a beautiful word, literally day drifter. Um, or there's another word um, which could be used for this kind of type of urban wanderer loafer is lady ganger, which literally means light light goer, light walker. Um, so you have these two lovely words in, in the Danish language, ledigenger and, and daudriver, which how actually daudriver is translated as flaner um, or, or, or loafer or idler at different parts uh, of Kierkegaard's corpus, which is not used that much, but Kierkegaard refers to Socrates as a daudriver. Um, and he refers to himself as a daudriver in the point of view. And this is, of course, a great example of the of of modernism of a kind of modernist thinker in the kind of urban environment. Kierkegaard, um, spending a lot of time, as you say, walking the streets of Copenhagen, small little town. It's nothing like Paris or London, but um, enough for such a vivid and fertile imagination as Kierkegaard's to turn it into a metropolis. You know, the, and it's it's significantly Copenhagen means literally Copenhagen, the, the harbor of the market. So if you think of the the commodity fetishism and the the new uh, the market, you have him going through the city and he was fascinated by people and talking to all kinds of people um, and seeing the world as the observer and being the flaneur for someone like Benjamin or Kierkegaard is also someone that's the unrecognizable or the incognito, the, the, the ironic kind of mask, you know, pretending to be doing nothing and um, pretending to be just a kind of layabout, but actually observing the poet is this kind of uh, urban wanderer seeing from the various multiple perspectives and kind of going back to write about it and it goes back to the opening quote from the this the introduction to this book about politics being not for me but looking at insignificant discoveries it's in the insignificant where we can see things and for someone like Benjamin it's in the ruins in the ruins of, of history and um, in the small uh, forgotten stories of, of history where we actually can go in and find um, uh, uh, real kind of insights into, into the history. And um, so with Kierkegaard again, he's also doing that even in, in, in the book, uh, Philosophical Fragments, a small book, it's actually literally is philosophical crumbs because the Danish word is smuler or smule, which means literally would be a translation as philosophical crumbs, the crumbs of thinking. And it's in that book where there is an actual chapter called Interlude. And it's almost uh, the most one of the most dense chapters that Kierkegaard ever wrote. So just like an interlude, oh, a moment of, of, of respite in this very difficult uh, text that he, he's writing. But in that interlude, he goes through almost uh, the history of of time of looking at time through the Greeks uh, onto the Christian conception of time, and it's Kierkegaard showing his deep philosophical acumen there. But it's an interlude. So yes, they have this idea mixing the interior with the exterior as flaneurs going from the interiors, and you have lots of examples of this in either or descriptions of of places, the names of streets all over you could learn all about copenhagen by by reading either or and the description of places people and um, how they are and 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 benjamin you know you fast forward to benjamin's monumental unfinished work the arcades project collecting and collecting and collecting and that's very modern of course that this you see this with the great 
20th century modern writers back again, Joyce, or um, of course, you have even Dostoevsky in the 19th century with St. Petersburg. This, there, there's, a, there's an affinity between a city and a writer that's very powerful. Even in, in Portugal here with Fernando Pessoa, if you want to read about Lisbon, you read Pessoa wandering the streets. And it's a very powerful thing to capture the naming of streets and the naming of small place, kind of opening up a canvas of a modern world. Moving along with uh, Benjamin, another point of overlap you find between these two is their skepticism of historical progress. So both are skeptical of grand narratives that claim we are now in an enlightened age and are concerned for what this might cover up and close us off from. In Kierkegaard's case, he's concerned that modernity may be drowning out the individual. In Benjamin's case, modernity may be covering up the barbarism inherent to civilization. So what do they see here and what are they trying to salvage from this seemingly unstoppable stream of history? Yeah, but in the case of Kierkegaard, you have, of course, it was most of the the established philosophy there was Hegelian philosophy, even though it kind of had come late later to, to Denmark. So I always think of Kierkegaard was not per se so vehemently against Hegel as more vehemently against the Hegelians or the Danish Hegelians, as he says himself, uh, he says when he, he, he discovered Schopenhauer literally in his last year and a half of his life, well, Schopenhauer has, Schopenhauer has to deal with wind blowers of, of call them the Hegelian wind blowers. I have to deal with the wind suckers, the ones that are sucking in the Hegelian air into Denmark. Um, and so um, what Kierkegaard's great fear was, and I, was that these kind of abstract philosophies that you know, the, the genius of Hegel, and he says even in a footnote, in a, in a note in the diary, diary if, if Hegel had written the science of logic and said, this was just an experiment, um, he would have been the greatest thinker of all time, but he didn't. And as a result, he's comical. So it's this kind of hubris that he's worried about and that the loss of, of in this case, the single individual, the, the, the inkelt is the, the Danish word, a specific individual has been lost in abstract, not only in philosophy, but of course it's also happening for Kierkegaard in mass movements. And this is the, of course the industrial revolutions happening. This is the really where things, it's the birth of, of mass journalism happening, which Kierkegaard was involved and felt victim to at the same time, um, where it's very easy suddenly to find yourself in a very superficial um, place with, ideas and with um, socio-political activity and even the economy. The beginning of and end of Fear and Trembling is a re it relates both to the economy and ideas. He says, even in the world of ideas, like in the world of, of the economics, there has been a vertical sale of everything. So everything has gone down. The, and he talks about the age of disintegration um, in 1848, that this is the age of disintegration where everything is collapsed, collapsing. Um, but at the same time, these other forces are coming in to try to control uh, and this quest for a form of totality, which for Benjamin, again, Benjamin is a person that his whole writing is unfinished texts or re rejections or looking at the barbarism of the history and how um, it has been swallowed up by this kind of motor of history or, and in, of course, in Benjamin's case, it was very, very pertinent as a, a German, uh, a German Jew in Berlin uh, in the 1920s and 30s and having, of course, uh, to die prematurely. So, this was the so Kierkegaard is Hegelian and anti-Hegelian at the same time. 
there's a very, I mean, he's definitely a child of Hegel. He's using a lot of, of the tropes of Hegel and he, he loves doing dialectics, but his dialectics, and so does Benjamin, his dialectics is also always faltering. It doesn't come to a whole. The truth is not the whole per se, uh, as Hegel expressed once upon a time. And um, there's always this kind of collapse um, that, that's happening at the same time. So dialectics is, is, is there, but there's this interpenetration of dialectics that is, and, and you're kind of left in this fragmented element. And that's where the single individual comes in with Kierkegaard. And um, it's the single individual that has to express or make that leap famously with Kierkegaard or to make that decision. But it's it, it, philosophy is not going to help you um, at the end of the day. It's, it's the active individual that will. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, and that brings us to the fourth and final interlude you have. Um, Turning finally to Adorno, we see a critique of Kierkegaard reminiscent of some of Lukács' later work. Adorno finds Kierkegaard guilty of an inwardness that pulls one into a sort of inescapable labyrinth of self-reflection that is incapable of developing into a substantial political praxis, or as Adorno quoting Benjamin calls it, a petrified primordial landscape. So this is similar to Lukács, um, and we've already talked a bit about this, but what is Adorno's spin on this idea? And you argue that he misses uh, something in Kierkegaard. Could you speak to that? Again, Adorno is another very, uh, from my reading of Adorno back then, um, uh, his, he has an ambiguous relationship with, with Kierkegaard. And, and from my interpretation in the book, at least, um, he is very Kierkegaardian in many of the, uh, the ways he thinks um, throughout his, his, his adult life. He publishes his book on Kierkegaard, a, a monograph on Kierkegaard, The Construction of the Aesthetic in 1933, imagine, um, just when Hitler's coming to power. And again, you have to take this in context. Also, a lot of the, the attack on, on Kierkegaard, it's almost an indirect attack on Heidegger. I mean, um, this is 1933, Heidegger is now a card-carrying member of, of the Nazi party, has become the rector in Freiburg. And here's Adorno, also German, but Jewish again. And um, on the other end of the political spectrum, Kierkegaard, again, same reason, and, and, and Adorno was always a great admirer of Lukács, till the end, let it be said, but he was disturbed and um, perturbed by, by Lukács' destruction of reason and, the, and the Lukács' kind of journey into realism um, and looking for kind of a narrow, narrow views of the world after his initial early period writing um, that both Benjamin and Adorno were very much influenced and attracted by. But with 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 Kierkegaard, yes, it's it's the problem of of he thinks that you're stuck in this um, almost you become paralyzed. Isn't it? Kierkegaard never leaves the aesthetic realm in a way for Adorno. There, it's almost a fetishization of of inwardness or uh, innerlichkeit in in German that you you never really get out of. And this again is again. Adorno showing through the eyes of the Frankfurt School of, or of critical theory that this is remaining, you remain apolitical, you remain ambiguous, uh, you remain cut off, you remain fundamentally bourgeois and without responsibility. So that's more or less the, the problem that 
that Adorno has with Kierkegaard, but later Adorno, Kierkegaard turns up very positively in, in, in snippets in Adorno's work. And he goes back to it to, to Kierkegaard later, looking at works of love and other texts. So even though Adorno is very much turns with and goes with Marx and Hegel, Kierkegaard is still present in, especially in Minima Moralia, one of probably um, Adorno's most beautiful text uh, written during the war, Reflections on a Damaged Life, Minima Moralia, where you, when you see Kierkegaard in that text, you see a, a different Kierkegaard than the one that's under critique. And, and in very Kierkegaardian fashion, by writing a whole monograph on Kierkegaard, it's it's a love letter in a way. It's a, it's his farewell to Kierkegaard, and um, so it's it's dense with it's it's a loving critique of Kierkegaard. What I will say is that yes, I, 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 without repeating myself, just that Adorno doesn't see the the praxis that Kierkegaard actually. Uh, does engage with, um, of course, it's a very lonely um, praxis that he makes. But the 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 eighteen forty the, the eighteen fifty five praxis, there's no mention of Christian discourses in Adorno's critique, and um, there's very little mention of, of works of love in the construction of the aesthetic. So it's very it's, there's some very superficial parts to the, the reading and what what access he had to Kierkegaard um, at that time um, was was not. Some of it was quite limited. Remember, Kierkegaard's also greatest editor in German at the time was a guy called Emanuel Hirsch, who was part of that generation of Schmidt and Heidegger, very much aligned with the Nazis, a great Kierkegaard scholar, but, but editing it in a way that you're presenting Kierkegaard as a very hard-nailed uh, philosopher of decisionism, um, which inspired this generation of of, of thinkers in, in radical theology and philosophy phenomenology in Germany, um, which Adorno did not like. So he's kind of going through these, these, these texts uh, of, of Hirsch. So that's what Adorno misses. Um, and I tried to show, almost turning it back on Adorno, where actually Adorno is, is completing what Kierkegaard was trying to do um, a century earlier. Um, in, in the secular world, in a world, post-Christian world, with Adorno very much involved and showing that through through different texts, um, like you'll see in his, in his, in his aesthetic theory and his, his kind of people like Samuel Beckett or um, with Kafka um, or Trackel, these, these favorite writers of Adorno, which are showing the powerless of existence. But he, he so he has this, he, he hates philosophers that try to be, uh, artists at the same time, like so, he really goes after someone like Sartre that are doing. But Kierkegaard is an ambiguous one because he's not really doing um, either philosophy sometimes or writing literary text. Again, we're back to that interlude or indirect politics that's happening, and that's something that would attract Adorno. Adorno liked these kind of difficult um, things that are hard to classify. That I think still remains with Kierkegaard after all the critique uh, that uh, Adorno does, and in his last two works, Aesthetic Theory and Negative Dialectics, I find Kierkegaard still very much present there. Hegel, Kierkegaard, and Marx are somehow being interwoven in in Adorno's final works. Yeah, bringing this part of the conversation to a close and picking up something you were alluding to. Tying things off with Adorno and Kierkegaard, you bring forward the question of who. 
who am I speaking to? Who is the writer here? Who is the reader? Uh, Kierkegaard opens up via his pseudonyms as sort of groundless ground of identities, but it also opens up possibilities for reading and writing as a form of resistance to reification, something Adorno does pick up on. Could you explain what's going on for both thinkers here? Yeah, I mean, this is the, to whom am I speaking? You see this, this question turning up in a few moments um, in, in Kierkegaard's work. Um, in, in, in Sickness Unto Death, he, there's a moment where he almost gives a, a, a very intense definition of what the religious poet is, this kind of paradox. We didn't talk about paradox so much in this podcast, a paradox being fundamental to, to, to Kierkegaard's writings, the paradox, the thinker without paradox is like the lover without passion. You know, he's uh, famously Johannes Climacus says, but to whom am I speaking? Um, it's when he, he's like, who am I speaking? Who is the reader? Or who, who am I speaking before a God, before an entity or for, before posterity? And again, I, I bring in Hamlet here, the very first two words of Hamlet, who's there? Um, and not only that, so that's the first two, the, the, the question that begins Hamlet, who's there? Nay, speak and stand forth. So it's this kind of, so yeah, if you could read, dissect um, the beginning of Hamlet, who's there? Nay, the negation and speak and stand and unfold yourself. This really, for me, is very, if you read it through Kierkegaardian eyes, this could be a sum up of, of much of what Kierkegaard is trying to do and which eludes um, any form of capture. So, um, and I, when I say eluding any form of capture is because that's the whole point of Kierkegaard's thought through titles of his books and um, through the use of, of different pseudonyms and um, through the kind of um, inter, interpenetration of different disciplines within the text themselves. And, and that's really important, this, this idea of selfhood. And again, another paradox with Kierkegaard, it's all about becoming the self, isn't it? Where he'll say the, the purity of, uh, the purity to will one thing, uh, to try to, to have that selfhood. Um, but at the same time, by doing that, he's creating a kind of a plurality of, of, of subjects or a plurality of selfhood that, you know, it's almost what the exact opposite of what he wants to do, but that who's there, that, that listener. And again, you have these kind of silent elements, which we've talked about already. You know, Freighter Taciturnus is one of his pseudonyms, the, the silent brother who is listening to Quidam. Quidam, this is in Stages on Life's Way, um, which takes up the guilty, not guilty at part, takes up nearly two thirds of the book and Quidam, which literally the, the whatness um, character is talking, trying to overcome a love affair. He's looking at being a poet and it's the silent brother that responds. And he'll say at the end of that book, after going trawling through, and not many people read the whole of that book because it's, it's extremely dense. It's very allegorical, full of various um, literary motifs. And at the end of the book, Freighter Taciturnus literally says, who am I speaking to? Who is left? Um, maybe there's nobody left at all. And at, at, that, at that moment, you have two or three pages of the finest uh, Danish prose you're going to find. And people forget that Nikurgo is one of the greatest writers in the Danish language, where he talks about the, what is um, what is this language. And he goes through it in very different, different forms. It's almost he's playing at the end because he thinks there's nobody left there. Uh, and Kierkegaard returning to his beloved Danish language to, to close the book. Um, so I'm not asking your question um, so directly here, but it's this idea of, of 
the, the, the single individual is that one, that one reader, that stranger that is himself as well, and opening up to this kind of a looseness, this almost this negation that um, that eludes. I, I, I quote from Kierkegaard at the end of the book, opening the, the, the wound of, of negativity, that somehow there's always this kind of negation that's happening or uh, elusive. And, and that's why I used the motto as well from Moby Dick at the very beginning of the book, um, true places, um, it wasn't on any map, true places and uh, never are. It's not the, the quote I'm trying to remember, but yeah, it wasn't on any map, true places never are. It's not an accident then that someone like Deleuze uh, and Gattari in their book, A Thousand Plateaus, call Moby Dick the great, the great masterpiece of becoming. Um, and becoming, or Vorden in Danish, is, is a crucial, crucial um, subject or term in Kierkegaard, the becoming of oneself. But that who's there, which he refers to also, it come, comes back to Haman and Herder uh, and these kind of German thinkers that were going against Kant at the time and um, were kind of seen as the irrationalists uh, of the time and the, the time and remained um, close to, to Kierkegaard, especially Haman, this kind of, despite everything, what's absent um, is, is still, is what we must kind of enter, you know, and now we're, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping even further another um, famous reader of Kierkegaard is Wittgenstein. So you, uh, who, who says, of course, famously, that which we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. And you could read that through a Kierkegaardian light as well. And um, that, that to who's, who's there, that's the, the, the hidden reader, the, the hidden speaker even, um, is, is what's left. That, that something like Hegel or a system cannot capture, cannot capture what is happening with Abraham and and Isaac as they go up to Mount Moriah, for example, um, or what is happening with Hamlet um, as he's just before he makes the decision. So this is the, the element of, of who's there. Yeah, bringing this all to a close. So we're currently living in an age of increasing political polarization, economic inequality, and incoming environmental catastrophe. Um, and in a time like that, stepping aside to take some time to read Kierkegaard or a host of related writers can at times seem like a sort of privileged form of bourgeois decadence. Uh, given everything we've put on the table, what does this attitude miss about the relationship between inwardness and political commitment? Uh, when not reading Marx or Lenin or going to protest, how would you encourage people, especially young people who are finding themselves compelled to get involved politically, uh, how would you encourage them to also think critically about that inner life and the relationship that might have to political engagement? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Um, and I can see that, and like always, actually, it's not just now, but coming to Kierkegaard, there will be kind of blocks there. You kind of think, oh, Christian thinker, um, 19th century, why should I bother? Existentialism, come on, you know, let's move on. So in a superficial approach, you, you still have these, these um, I guess, blocks that turn up with approaching someone like Kierkegaard. But what, of course, like everything, when you, when you, when you dig deeper, what's, what could be useful or, um, and I hate the word useful, but what could in some way wake us up or um, be a kind of a, a kickstart to some kind of engagement would be, the element of Kierkegaard first is that, again, that the, the freedom to think. And I think that's very hard And that when he says that we have freedom of speech everywhere, but we don't have the freedom 
of thought. Um, we're losing that, that, that talent or freedom for really um, thinking, thinking critically um, and thinking in freedom, which I think many young people can, can feel that we're all, everyone's speaking, but um, who is actually really thinking? Um, that's one element. And the nu nuance, the nuance that's in Kierkegaard um, that you can see through the various different writings that I think when we're living in these kind of very quite binary times or times where it's people are afraid to even speak uh, with, with these divisions everywhere, I think Kierkegaard might help us to, to see with more complexity and more nuance in how to live as human beings. And, and thirdly, um, what's important as well, I think the element of, of this Tao driver is, 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 is crucial, this kind of, uh, as a kind of a, an act of resistance against um, the age of information, the age of, of this kind of um, leveling and, and being attacked by just um, the disaster porn media or the, the, the and very serious questions of kind of an apocalyptic feeling of, of, of climate change and all these things that, this idea of, of being able to slow down, that's which is for Kierkegaard is, is taken very seriously. This kind of taking with a with a kind of a, a pathos of distance to, 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 quote, to quote Nietzsche, but actually, but still being in in, in society, talking, engaging, um, and and not being swept away by the speed of things. That's why I, I like the, the the painting for the book. That I was allowed to use it's El Hombre Blanco, uh, the 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 man in white, which is by uh, Fenninger, a German American artist, early twentieth century, who lived in uh, Germany and Berlin through those chaotic times of, of the twenties and thirties, and finally fled in nineteen thirty six because this painting and these art was considered decadent art by the Nazis. But there's the, that that's the flaneur going through, and you can see his shadow in black almost between his legs as well and the, the skyscrapers now look are the, are the new churches so this is the modern world that we're, we're living in in the early modernism i don't think i think we can learn a lot from modernism in the 21st century we're, we're not out of it actually when you parallel the 1920s and 1930s to now the 2020s 2030s it's very sad that that could go this way as well despite all our technology and information and very different world we have we're living in we are also living in an age of hysteria, an age of, of, of growing tensions and various forms of nationalisms as well. Um, and we could go down that road and we're seeing it also in, in politics from the United States to Brazil, to Britain, to Hungary, um, of extreme kind of populist movements taking over and people either feeling completely uh, detached, disillusioned or remaining ignorant. Um, but millions voting for quite uh, monstrous or very irresponsible or clownish leaders. Someone like Kierkegaard might engage you, uh, almost chiseling away at your thought with those kind of the, the Socratic thinking and the, 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 the Christ-like figure of, of, of society. Um, through through working not being caught in these in these in these kind of frameworks going against the tide um, and managing to, to speak in nuances as well but it's of course you have to be in a, in a privileged position to be able to get there at the same time but that's been there 
um, that's the, the paradoxical thing. Is it was like that with Chuck Wars period as well, even more so, of course. Now, supposedly, we live in a far more democratic society, but we're not using these tools, or we're not, we don't want to access these tools. Um, and and, and it, it takes effort to read someone like Europe War today, which, as we know, our, our minds have been kind of, uh, are, being, are, are being changed for good or for bad. We, we have a different way of, of, of using our attention. But Europe War is all about, it's a very close, attentive reading with Europe War as well. Um, and it helps you, I think, when you, it helps to see, uh, even going through someone like, you know, Lukács or Adorno or Benjamin, reading them anew as well. And it's really important as a reader, um, as Kierkegaard himself, when he quotes uh, a German writer, when a, when, a, when a monkey looks in, no apostle looks out. So it's, it's the reader uh, brings alive or brings to death the author. And, and that's really important um, with someone like Kierkegaard. Yeah, so that brings us to the end of the book. So as a final question, I always like to ask, what, if anything, are you working on now or what can we look forward to from you in the future, near or far? Um, well, I'm actually have two small, well, two book projects actually, which are quite different than uh, Kierkegaard's Indirect Politics, but actually one is a book on, on Joyce, um, which won't be out for a while because I'm just starting it, James Joyce, the, and, and looking at kind of um, uh, the philosophy of James Joyce, looking at how we can view Joyce and his works philosophically. And of course, he was a great reader of, philo of philosophy, but how he actually um, philosophized and looking at the idea of the art of flourishing and decay in Joyce. And that will be coming out with Oxford University Press, hopefully, in, 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 in the sometime in the future. And I'll be writing a small book on, on Fernando Pessoa, for a critical live series. They're the two books I'm, I'm working on. So um, yeah, that's that will keep me busy for the next little while. Yeah, you'll have to come back and discuss them when they're ready. So uh, in the meantime, Bartholomew Ryan, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's great to be able to, to talk about these themes again.